Are you looking for something different to entertain your kids? Check out a new podcast for children. Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, is a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. Math is geared towards kids six and up, but can be enjoyed by the entire family. I love how the episodes are under 20 minutes, which was perfect for our drive to school. And my four-year-old really loved the episode, The Pirate Queen. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time-traveling adventures. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras' ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and so much more. New episodes drop every Thursday, and I love how engaging, funny, and educational the episodes are. Your kids won't even realize they're learning about math and problem solving. My son even said he wanted to finish the episode on our drive home from school. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this episode. This is part of my Mother's Message series, talking with moms about their children and giving messages to the world. Thank you so much for joining me today, Katie. Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoy being able to put a little light on uh, somebody who has autism, and especially a girl, because we don't really get a lot of those stories. And that is why I'm just so grateful that you responded. I had put up on my stories, you know, if anyone was interested in coming on the podcast, and I so appreciate you reaching out. Um, It means a lot. And exactly what you said, you know, we do tend to have more of a diagnosis in boys. Um, I talked about that in another episode today. But yes, girls can sometimes be later in the diagnosis because we, you know, think that they may be doing other things. And we're like, we push off that diagnosis sometimes. So when was your daughter diagnosed? And also, when did you start noticing maybe some characteristics that maybe ended up becoming the diagnosis of autism? So she was formally diagnosed, funnily, on March 27th of 2017. So she was a little like three months-ish old, um, but we had gotten her into an early intervention program when she was two because I was worried about her speech. And so when I did the the intake paperwork with the early intervention program, and I was really concerned about her speech. She's only using one word. Um, a lot of rote speech. They said, well, what else? And I said, what do you mean, what else? And they said, well, usually if somebody has one issue, there's going to be more. And so they sent me with the DACI to fill out for sensory stuff too. And that's kind of what, it's like, well, okay. So yeah, she never took a bottle or a pacifier and she only sleeps for 45 minutes at a time. And she hates loud noises and she doesn't uh, make eye contact and she stares at spinning things all the time. And so it's kind of this cascade of, oh my gosh, it's so many more things. And then shortly after we got her started in their program, the therapist started saying, you know, this might be autism. It's a little hard to tell, especially um, she's not presenting a lot of typical um, things attributed to it. Maybe, you know, we'll just keep an eye out. And then uh, whatever her birthday came around and we took her to her well visit at her pediatrician and they have a, a 20 question form like maybe this year could have autism and she like everything was flagged all but like three or four questions so we got our referral from there and I think that is probably the MCHAT does that sound familiar that does (laughs) 
Yeah. So I actually, I talk about the MCHAT on another episode with um, Mrs. Speech EP. That's a speech therapist. So you guys can listen to that episode because we go over that MCHAT actually in a little bit of detail so that parents know how to respond to those questions. So you feel like maybe around two years old was when you probably started to feel that there was maybe some characteristics or do you feel like there was something looking back like a little bit earlier than that? Well, looking back, like you can see it all. Like it's so funny how you just sit there and you're like, oh, everything is completely normal. But she's typical. She's so typical. And then, you know, one brick falls into place and then the next. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I can see it. Like you look at home videos, little clips, and you're like, there it is. There it is. So it's like the lack of eye contact. She, uh, the lack of sleep, which everyone said, oh, you know, she'll grow out of that. You know, once she's not nursing anymore, well, we stopped nursing when she was months well she still didn't sleep and she was a really unhappy child she just upset all the time and there was nothing we could do and I mean now like she has more tools but at the time it's it's hard to know when you're in it until somebody kind of that reassurance that oh no what you're seeing is not pretend this is real and it's happening and does she have any, you know, you're saying something about the bottle and the pacifier. Does she have any, looking back, like, does she have any issues with eating? Like, was she a, perceived to be like a picky eater and that was just kind of told to you as a picky eater? Or was it that she was a good eater? What was the eating like? So she was and continues to be a picky eater. We've actually done a lot of feeding therapy. But at the time, it was like, well, she's still learning to like things. That was kind of the thing. Like, oh, you know, just keep it with the exposures. Keep trying. And as time went on, she lost more and more food. She got super restricted with her diet. I mean, at the time, I didn't think too much of it because my husband's a bit of a picky eater. So I was like, oh, maybe, you know, we're just not trying hard enough. Well, the reason I'm asking, you know, when we look at the characteristics and to make the diagnosis of autism, and you, like you said, you you started feeling more at two years old, and then the official diagnosis was made at three, which we'll get into. A lot of the characteristics are not all listed on like a pretty paper that says, oh, you check this box and you check this box. And so it can be really hard to make that diagnosis. I'm actually really interested that you brought up the sleep, the eating, and obviously the unhappy all the time, because I actually know that's not an official diagnosis, right? I know that those individual things are not on like the DSM five criteria, but I notice that if I see a child that is having concerns with all three of those domains, right? Sleeping, eating, and behavior. I want to talk to the family. Hey, is this something that we need to change in terms of how we're approaching the boundaries? Or is it something that's going on with the child in terms of not being able to settle and not being able to understand those boundaries? And that is when I, I think it's really important that there's a big distinction because it could be totally different diagnoses, right? It's one is that we need to work with the parents. One is that, no, we truly need to work with the child because, you know, there, there is a developmental um, diagnosis that we have to make so that they can get the services to help them be, you know, uh, more explorative, either eat or sleep, like, you know, help with their sleep. So I think that's really interesting that you brought it up. I know we, we didn't speak about that before this episode, but I was just curious if that happened. Well, it's nice to hear from you that, you know, presents as like a flag for you because we were kind of, not brushed off. They're saying, yeah, that's a problem. And, you know, here's some sleep training guides. And I mean, the sleep training, it was a joke. I, I lost more sleep trying to train her than just getting up every 45 minutes and putting her back down. And I think the hard part of all this, right, like I mentioned earlier, is that what you're describing individually, I can see why us as pediatricians or anyone you're talking to, like a friend, would say, yeah, Katie, yeah, this, you know, every child is not a good sleeper. Every child is a picky eater. Every child has tantrums. I get that. But I'm honestly, Katie, I'm so glad you're mentioning this because I have been like, this is my like, I preach this a lot. And I talk to families a lot. And I say, look, I'm not saying that 
it's I, I'm concerned. I'm just saying we need to watch this because if this is happening, I want to work with you all on how we can maybe get some services if we need to. Now, do you feel like looking back, you mentioned briefly, do you feel like when you look back at everything, do you feel like your clinician was understanding of the concerns or do you feel like it was dismissed? You mentioned briefly that maybe a little bit, but I'm just curious how you felt the medical community um, approach this diagnosis. Well, we have been pretty lucky in that we have a nurse practitioner who's her primary care and she has been so open and supportive. Like basically anytime I mention something and I say, this is an actual concern for us, she has been really good about, okay, well, I'll get you some numbers. I'll send in some referrals, whatever you need. But in those younger baby days, practice we go to has like seven different providers. And so we kind of got cycled through a lot of them. And so we weeded down the people who we didn't feel are very supportive and we don't see them anymore. But initially a lot of it was just like, oh, it's fine. She's going to grow out of this. You know, just more exposures, do this, do that. And you know, most of the time it didn't really work out the way they had assumed it would. And when, how was the official diagnosis made? Did you have to go to a specialist or was that just with your, your nurse practitioner or how did that happen? We saw a developmental pediatrician and that was that day. Like if I think about it too much, I start crying because it was so traumatic for all of us and not necessarily the actual like receiving the diagnosis, but the testing that went on that day. It was early morning. It was in the, the big city that we live adjacent to. So we had to like get her up early, which doesn't work very well for her. And we had to take her to an office she had never been to. And the uh, diagnosing doctor was a man. And she at the time was terrified of men. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. And so 
was there and he's kind of this older gruff guy and basically said she was untestable. She just laid on the floor and had a meltdown for at least the first 30 minutes. And then I kind of coaxed her out of it. And he's like, all right, she needs to do, um, I want to say it was like pretend play pouring from a teapot to a cup or something like that. But she just kept taking the lid off the teapot and putting it back on. And so he, he asked my husband and I said, so what do you think's wrong with her? And I go, what? Like, we're, we're here to talk to you about this. He goes, well, why are you here? I said, well, uh, her therapist from early intervention thinks she might have autism. And we did that little screener at her pediatrician. And he goes, well, do you think she has autism? I said, I, sir, I don't know. And he's like, well, unless uh, you're lying to us and your therapists are lying to us, she definitely has autism. And uh, I'm gonna, she he had her at level two. He typed up a bunch of stuff. So we've sat in the lobby while he's typing out this stuff for like 30 minutes. She's a mess and I'm just shaking. So I'm like, what the heck even just happened? And then he sends us home with a packet and says she has autism. And here's a list of all the providers for therapies in our area. Good luck. Um, the wait lists in our, our area are super long. So you want to start making phone calls now. That was yeah, a crazy day. Katie, I'm so sorry. And that was when she was three, correct? Three and like whatever, two or three months at the time. And I feel really lucky to have gotten the diagnosis so early because the um, therapist at the early intervention had said, you know, it's hard for girls to get a diagnosis and it's, this might go on for years. And I just want to give you the heads up about that now. So we had gone in not necessarily anticipating getting a diagnosis at all, or maybe an alternative diagnosis. But um, I feel I feel lucky that we got what we needed to get services, basically. Well, I'm just really sorry to hear that that's the way you got the diagnosis. Um, look, as like, I mean, I can't speak for everyone in the medical community, you know that, but you know, one of the hardest things for me is hearing that because, you know, how isolating that feels to get that diagnosis, right? You're already there. You, even though you have the idea to hear those words come out, it can feel so lonely in that moment, even though, you know, you're like, what does it mean? What is this? All, what am I going to do? And the, the least that we can do on the other side, even if we're busy, is just to say, what can I help you with? What are you feeling? You know, and I hear that. And I, I'm so sorry that this brings up emotions for you. I'm really sorry that I'm, I'm getting a little emotional, too, because I can only imagine how lonely you felt in that moment. Like, how how did it feel getting that diagnosis? Not necessarily that moment, but in general. I was heartbroken. But at the same time, I wasn't surprised because we've been going through like, I want to say like nine to 10 months of therapy at that point. So we'd been, oh my gosh, you are getting teary. <laughs> we had been around therapists and other families who had kids on the spectrum or with other developmental delays enough to see like, okay, these dots are connecting. Um, but at the same time, I just, on the ride home, I was just crying silently and texting my friend because she was so concerned. She's like, what's, what's going on? What's going on? And I, my husband was holding my hand and we're not super touchy-feely like that in the car, but he's holding my hand the whole time because he could just see that I was just a mess. And it was so funny because as soon as like I got home out of the car, I got her out of the car, feeding her some food. I was like, okay, well, I am now going to call every phone number on this list. It was three pages front and back. I just started making phone call after phone call. All right, what insurance information do you need? My my brain went immediately like, all right, I'm going to solve this problem and we're going to be fine. And it wasn't until I spoke with um, a lady at an ABA facility that she uh, she said, hey, how are you doing? And then I just started sobbing on the phone with a stranger for like 20 minutes. She's like, you're allowed to cry. You're allowed to have these feelings. It's not your job to fix it. Your kid has had autism much longer than you've been told that she has autism. You're doing fine. And so like, that was kind of like, you're right. 
I'm, and I am doing fine. She's doing fine. Even if I did nothing right now, she's going to be fine. So it was a lot of, I need to fix it. I need to fix it. And I think a lot of moms especially go through that. It's like, all right, here's the problem. Let me fix it. We're going to be good. And at that point, when you got the diagnosis, did you know anyone else like personally that had gone through similar experience, like children who had similar diagnoses or no? Yes. Cause we were in that early intervention um, program. And so there are Part of therapy was a preschool setting where she was with typical and atypical peers to kind of learn how to socialize because she is an only child. Um, So she wasn't getting a lot of family socialization um, with other kids. And so we had met some and one of them, actually, the dad works with my husband just by off chance. So we have, you know, a small community and it's gotten bigger. The more we've gotten involved, the more years we're in this, you know, more people. But yeah, initially, none of my family, none of my friends, the closest I have, my my aunt has a child with Down syndrome. So I called her like, oh my God, what do I do? And so that was like the major touchstone. But we're lucky that my family who lives close by is very supportive of my daughter, Rachel, and myself and my husband. They're like, you know, we're cool. We got this. What do you need us to do? What do you want us to know? So that's been, it's hard at first, but you, once you start putting feelers out, you will find there are so many more people than you think who have experienced autism or really so many other things too. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like I said, I know you're saying that you had an idea that this diagnosis was coming. But when you actually hear the words and hear someone say it, that that wave of emotion that comes on and the what ifs that come on, and it is a very isolating experience. And then you find that community and the community exists, even if it's strangers that you meet on social media or whatever that is, it's like, it's just so nice to meet people who just resonate with what you're going through. And uh, I, I'm sure that was so helpful to you. Did it help navigating the process of finding early intervention also? like the services that she needed? Well, early intervention, um, I don't know how it works in other states, but it's, you know, birth to three, you, they have centers that have all of the therapists you need, basically. And if you need therapy that they don't necessarily have in-house, they bring the people in. So part of her early intervention program was, like I was saying, a preschool. And in that preschool, they have um, speech therapists, OTs, PTs. So she was getting all of those services while she was in school already. And every now and again, I want to say like every other week, um, a speech therapist would come in house and come to our house for like an hour um, and do that. So we actually like probably the easiest part of everything we've had to do for her is getting the early intervention. So it was like the first phone call I made, whatever the company was, they picked up the phone, they got us in within a couple of weeks. It was really, that was probably the easiest part. Everything since then has kind of been like a rocky hill to climb, but we've been lucky. I think in our state, early intervention is pretty well funded. Um, It's well known. There's a lot of advertising for it. So I think um, that wasn't too rough. And so then after obviously early intervention, she went into ABA therapy or something else? So when you age out at three, they do more testing for your school district. So some kids who did early intervention will not meet the same criteria needed to do um, stuff for your school district, IEPs, 504, stuff like that. And she had gotten in, so she got in with our school district doing a preschool there. And so they had similar stuff, PT, OT, speech, in-house. And then we got her, finally, she got off the wait list for ABA. It took about nine months, I want to say. That was really rough. Um, She got into an intensive ABA program. So it was a 12-week program and her school, so through the school district, was in the afternoon. The ABA was in the morning, so we'd get her up in the morning. Three hours of ABA. They also had um, 
one day a week, parents had to stay and do training there. Eat her lunch, take her to school. So she'd have a full day of therapy. And um, she got on a wait list to do in-home ABA. But by the time she got to the top of the wait list, she was in kindergarten. And it was only during school hours. So we haven't been able to do more ABA. But we also did uh, feeding therapy, a few rounds of that. That's 12 weeks at a time. Um, so it never really ends. It gets harder when they're in school because there's fewer hours in the day that are available to do these therapies that aren't necessarily for educational purposes. So it's not included with your IEP or your 504. So right now she's seven. So she's in first grade? She is. So at right now in her school, she is getting the services in her school, like the IEP and 504 in place or where's the service? Yeah. So she has a 504 right now. Um, a few months into kindergarten, she transitioned from the IEP to the 504. So that means that she's no longer getting specialized education. She still has supports. So um, for her, she has a special, a special ed bus because the closest bus stop for um, our school is like four blocks away. And she has uh, some problems with uh, being startled. So if a car goes by really fast or a honk, horn honks, that'll your problem. So she has door-to-door um, busing. She has a stool in the cafeteria. So when she sits down, feet are flat on something because she needs um, position properly for eating because that's something she still struggles with. She has access to the staff bathroom so that she doesn't have to deal with the, the flushing toilets because that's something that startles her. She has access to um, sensory toys. She's allowed to leave the classroom if it gets too much. She has headphones that she can wear if it gets too loud. So while she's no longer receiving um, services, uh, the speech and the OT, those are the supports she has. Um, we haven't sought outside services this year because of COVID, really trying to reduce risk. Um, so she had to stop doing her swim lessons, which has been rough. She has one-on-one swim lessons at the YMCA that Medicaid pays for. Um, we're trying to get her into horse therapy can't do that right now because that's shut down. So everything's kind of stalled out and we're lucky that she isn't necessarily losing anything by having this pause because I know a lot of families, it's been so much more difficult for them when their kids aren't able to get this stuff right now. Oh yeah. I was just going to ask because I, we're dealing with that in our, in our practice, you know, a lot of our families who have had these things stalled and it really regressed. I mean, a lot of the service. So basically what we're talking about, everyone is like, these services are so important for children, right? I mean, when they're getting it, we see changes, we see them progressing, but when we stop it, especially when they're younger, right? I mean, maybe because she's a little bit older, but when we like just say I had like a four-year-old or five-year-old and when we stop it, it's like we backtrack. And the goal here is early intervention. The girl goal here is getting the services. And we're talking about services. We're talking about whether it's feeding therapy, the equine therapy, whatever therapies we're doing so that we can allow um, the family and the child to you know, to learn um, the skills they need. I'm so happy to hear that you didn't have that experience, but it's really important that people do hear that. Like that was something that I just don't think people understand about this pandemic. You know, we are all going through something, but my families who are going through losing the services that they needed for their child was probably the most hardest thing about this pandemic. And why when I would, you know, people are like, well, why is this family doing this right now? Why is this family, you know, doing this? And the judgment that would happen for families, I'm like, we need to be very kind and understand the situation here. We need to be very understanding and empathetic. And honestly, this is why I'm doing this series, because I just really wanted people to understand what is going on in the world with life. We need to be kinder. We need to kind of understand that, you know, I'm so happy that, like you said, um, you guys have been okay here, but it's like so many families are just going through this. And I know you are too. I mean, even though she's okay, I'm sure 
ideally we'd want our child to get those services if they could. Um, and the, the stuff that you were applying for, you know, had to be halted. I mean, that's, that sucks. I agree with that. Yeah. She's pretty resilient. I will say that when last March 13th, when the world shut down and they cut school here, she was in kindergarten. We had just moved this summer before this new school district, this new neighborhood. She didn't know anybody here. She had one friend in her classroom who she wasn't going to see anymore because she can't go back to school. And for like three months, she was probably in the worst shape she's been since before we did early intervention. We had meltdowns almost every day. She has selective mutism. When she gets really um, overwhelmed. We're so many silent days. And so we've worked past that at this point. And we were really frustrated too, because we wanted to get her to see a therapist, just talk about her feelings, work through things. But in our state, they weren't seeing people in person. So she doesn't do a Zoom call. She's, she was six. Like she doesn't care. She wouldn't have no connection to anything. So change is hard for people with autism usually. And for her, that is one of her, especially like issues is transitions and uh, not knowing what to expect. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rash, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball. Let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice. With over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews, you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC. That's P-E-D-S-D-O-C. Becoming a new mom does not come with a manual, but I'm trying to get as close to it as possible. Are you expecting a baby or know somebody who is? Make sure to grab my first year course, The New Mom Survival Guide. The on-demand course contains modules covering parenting in the first year, newborn feeding like breast and formula feeding, newborn sleep and infant sleep, introduction of solids, safety, baby care how-tos, developmental milestones, teething, and so much more. With videos and printables, you will feel supported through the first year. The course also has a roadmap that takes you through what to expect visit by visit so you can feel more confident and calm in the choices that you make and the stages that you'll go through during your baby's first year. By purchasing, you also get access to our Facebook community to troubleshoot issues or concerns. It also makes a great gift that can support a new mom through her motherhood journey. Check out the New Mom Survival Guide by visiting pedsdoctalk.com and searching our popular courses. She talks now about, I can't wait for coronavirus to be over. When can I get my shots? My husband and I are, we're half vaccinated now. So we're very excited about that. <laughs> but she wants to know when she can do it because she wants to go to Disneyland. She wants to go visit her cousin. She wants to do the things that we were doing. She has a bit harder of a time understanding. Why not? 
Yeah. Oh, I know. I agree with this. I mean, it's been so hard. And your Disneyland comment is like another thing that, you know, like I get a lot of people on my social media who are like, I would never go. Like, why would anyone do that and jeopardize their child? And I'm like, well, we have to also understand that even I have some families like that go because of the fact that this is something that their child really wants. And it's something that will give the family some sanity. And I don't think that that's a bad idea if the family weighed benefit and risk, you know, it depends on the family situation. Uh, But I totally, uh, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so wanting this pandemic to be over so that we can move on with our lives. But I'm so glad to hear how resilient she is. And kids are super resilient. So she's just a testament to that. Oh, what, what do you wish like other parents could know about your child? Like, what do you think some of the misconceptions are? What do you think, you know, you, you have a platform here now. Like, what would, what do you want to tell the world here? Oh boy. Um, I'd like to say Rachel has always had autism. She always will have autism. And she has spent the majority of her life doing things and learning things to fit the mold of typical. And with that being said, I can guarantee nearly none of the people she is in a classroom with have done that to try and help get themselves wrapped around somebody with a disability. And so she's been in school learning how to just exist in a world that wasn't meant for her since she was two years old. And there's so many things she can't do. There's so many more that she can't. She has an encyclopedic knowledge of Disney things. You can show her a pic, like a corner of a picture, and she'll tell you what scene that is from a movie. She knows everything about the solar system. She's the kindest person you've ever met in your entire life. She doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. She has an incredible sense of humor. Her sarcasm is going to be so good. I can just feel that coming already. <laughs> her friends are riding bikes with two wheels, and she uses a three-wheel scooter because she doesn't have balance for a bike. She She can't walk to the school bus because it's too loud. She loves to play with dogs, but she has a hard time playing with people. She doesn't read people's faces well. Her face not match her feelings, and that's okay. And we shouldn't necessarily want her face to match her feelings. She doesn't make eye contact with people, and I would never force her to. It makes her incredibly uncomfortable. And someday she's going to be a person who's an adult who may have a job, may live on her own, maybe not. But as much as she's meeting people where they are, People need to meet her or anyone with any disability where they are too. Because they are genuinely trying the best they can. This is so true. You're making me emotional because I look, I'm a I I started Pete's Doc Talk. People don't understand. Like I know I talk a lot about neurotypical content. You know, I talk a lot about neurotypical content, but the the point of Pete's Doc Talk comes from a place of taking care of so many families who are not neurotypical, you know, who aren't neuroatypical. It's just, and when you, when I say that, it's because I see so many families, I meet so many amazing people. And I have realized that sometimes we worry about things. I'm going to say it, neurotypical parents worry about things that I, I sometimes think is trivial, right? I'm like, why are we, th- why are we worrying about this? Like, this is not something like I think about all the families who have to go through all of the things that you're talking about and so much other things, right? And I'm like, as a pediatrician, that's why I stay so grounded in terms of everything I see, right? I see everything. I see families do so much with so little. I see families who are thriving. I see families who are struggling. I see it all. And we need way more compassion. We need, like you said, like we need people to understand, to meet the child where they need to be met. We don't need to hold hold them to a standard. That's what we created as a society. And who decided that as a society? You know, like, why did we decide that? Like, have you, when you are out in public, have you been met with any, like, do you have an example of something that happened in public that really as a mom of an autistic child really hurt you? Like, I'm sure that's happened or maybe not. 
Oh my gosh, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> How do I choose? <laughs> well, as we all know, April is the autism month. In April, in my state at least, is also spring break. And we travel a lot. My husband and I were travelers before we had her, and we decided, well, you can be miserable at home as easily as you can be miserable in the Caribbean. So we would we take her everywhere, and um, that includes a lot of plane rides. And we like to spread our autism awareness all throughout the country, soon to be international, hopefully. But so often we find uh, she's on an airplane and the ear popping. Most kids, you know, can get through it pretty easily. Um, you know, you give them some water, something to chew on, and they're good to go. She was about 18 months old, I want to say. Yeah, that sounds right. We're going to Mexico. And so it's a long flight from the Seattle airport down to Puerto Vallarta. It's like six and a half hours. And she was being a rock star um, until about three hours in. She, uh, she woke up and the popping was bugging her. She just kept screaming and grabbing her ears. And um, I mean, at the time, we didn't know she had autism, but it makes perfect sense now. And older couple in front of us just lost their minds. And my husband and I, you know, new parents, first international flight with our baby, we're doing the best we can. And it's just like, how easy would it have been instead of turning around and saying, shut the baby up and a few other choice words, as it would have been to just say, you good? And do something or ignore it because you know we're mortified already. Absolutely mortified. And there's been times we go to Disneyland because we were pass holders until they got rid of the program recently because they're so good about accommodations for disabilities. We had no problem throwing thousands of dollars at Disney because they always took care of us and didn't make us feel weird. But a couple of times we would go and get our little disability pass for Rachel and they would say, well, why does she need the stroller? Like, okay, well, she has autism and I need to buckle her in because she'll take off. You will never find her again because she'll sit there silently. You'll never see her again. They're like, well, you can either have the whatever the pass that lets you wait outside of the line or you can have the stroller. It's like, no, that's not how that works. And then you get some parents at Disneyland example that would say, oh, you're so lucky that you get to have a stroller in this line. Oh, you're so lucky. How did you get that tag? Well, you get a kid with a disability. And when you say that, their faces just go white. And you're like, yeah, you deserve that one. You stepped in it. Oh, yeah. Well, and this is the, this is what I'm saying. Like we can, we have a, we have control over the words in our, in our mind, right? We, like you said, like the couple on the airplane, that's a great example. You have two choices. Like you said, you don't have to say anything. Even if you feel frustrated, just don't say anything. Why, why have we become a culture on social media and in life to say things to other people when it's really not our place? I mean, it really isn't. Even as a pediatrician who knows everything about child development, da, da, da. I, when I see another family struggling, I am very compassionate. And I also understand, right? I know exactly. I know, even if I know that it's a tantrum, right? I have, and in the, in the airport, I've seen it all the time. People like, like, what is she doing? Why are they doing that? And I'm like, everyone, let the family do what they need to do. I'm like, they're in control. They're the family. If they need our help, you know, we should be there to help them. I agree with you completely. That hurts. I mean, you are doing your best. We all are. And to get that, to be faced with that, I mean, when you're already mortified, like you said, I mean, it's not like you're like, okay, well, let's just uh, do this. You're like, obviously trying to do your best. People just don't get it. It's just so hard. And I'm so sorry. I, I don't know why I'm apologizing for these people, but it like, it really is protective. I just feel like, why? Like, why did you have to go through that? And I'm sure you, you know, you continue to go through it in little different microaggressions. You know, there's microaggressions to families with disabilities every day. And we need to teach our children and we need teach ourselves how to be more aware of these things. Like, I mean, it's just, it's only going to get worse if we don't look inside ourselves too, you know? Yeah. 
No, and there's such a push now, and I'm thankful for like inclusion and integration and stuff in her school. So um, there is more awareness with her peers, people who learn differently or look differently, they get to be in your classroom too. And I like that. I don't want her to feel different because she's at that age now where she's noticing her differences. She doesn't necessarily like them. So we bolster her confidence to obscene heights. We just want her to be as confident as she can, because I know that there's going to be people surrounding her in her life that may not have the confidence in her that she has in herself. Oh, Katie, this was such a great conversation. I love this. I mean, I just think it was so important, you know, one, to for any other parent listening to this that may be going through something similar, right? Resonate, it, like being able to feel like you have that, that person and that story that really resonates, it really helps in healing and validation, like you said, right? Like when that 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 lady on the ABA line said, how are you feeling? You know, it, it helps. And no one needs, you know, as mothers, we don't always need something to be done for us. We just some, want someone to hear us and say, this is hard. You know, I just want you to know what I'm going through. So I, I so appreciate that. And then also for anyone else who isn't going through this, I think it's important that they hear these words, right? The, what you, what you've gone through, I know many mothers have gone through. Um, what would be your like final take home mother's message? Like for other, a lot of moms listen to this also dads, but what would be your final message to other moms? You are not a superhero because you have a child with a disability. You rise to the occasion because it's the occasion you have. If I didn't have a kid with autism, I'd be worried about trivial things too, because they're only as trivial as they are in your circumstance. So you're doing the best you can. And if you're not doing the best you can, find supports that will allow you to do that. You have to take care of yourself in addition to take care, taking care of your child. You need therapy. You need to ask your partner to step up to do something because you're carrying the load. You need more help from your school. You deserve it, but you do have to ask. Yeah. Katie, thank you so much for joining me. It means a lot. I really, I learned a lot from you too. And I know all my listeners did. So I really appreciate you taking this time to record this with us and sharing your message with the world. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you giving a platform to families. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review, share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, PedsDocTalkTV. We'll talk to you soon. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the TILT Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.